0: Today we finish a little four-part series on the book of Esther. And Esther, in your Bible, is the story of a Jewish girl. She was originally named Hadassah, that's her Jewish name or Hebrew name. But she had become an orphan during the tumultuous years after Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem and carried away all of its citizens to Babylon as captives. So sometime after that, Esther lived. Persia has now become the dominant world empire, and Esther has been raised without parents. She's an orphan, raised without parents in that foreign land. She has kept her Jewish identity a secret all this time, and she's raised by her cousin Mordecai, who really functions more as an uncle to her. You know the story of Esther. You've heard it since you were in Sunday school. Eventually, she's chosen by King Ahasuerus out of hundreds of young women, and she replaces the rebellious Queen Vashti. And amazing enough, this orphan girl, this Jewish orphan girl, moves into the palace in Shushan, the capital of the empire. So the book of Esther is a story of one very courageous young woman who risks her life to save her people from certain annihilation. The events of the book of Esther gave rise to a feast day, a festival that the Jews still celebrate today. It's called the Feast of Purim. They've celebrated it ever since. The word "pur" means lots. It's like rolling the dice. And the feast got its name from that because Haman, their enemy, had rolled the dice, so to speak. He had cast lots to determine what day the Jews would be slaughtered. He hated the Jews, and he especially hated Mordecai. And so through deceitful manipulation, Haman was able to get the king's permission to issue a decree of destruction in the king's name. And when that happened, it couldn't be changed because the law of the Medes and the Persians said, if the king ever passes a law, that's it. It's over, it cannot be changed. So the Jews would be robbed and slain in just a few months and there was nothing anybody could do about it except Esther who sat in the palace of the king and that's why Mordecai gave her this challenge, the most familiar verse in the story of Esther. For if thou altogether holdeth thy peace at this time, then there will be enlargement and deliverance. It will come. God will look after his people. It will arise to the Jews from another place. But Esther, what you gotta realize is when God puts his anointing on you and when God calls you and when God puts his destiny on you, if you don't do what God's asking you to do, you and your father's house, you'll be destroyed. You'll fall in with all the rest of the destruction. But Esther, it's bigger than that. It's better than that. Who knows whether you are come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Who knows whether God has raised you up at this time in this way, in this place to do his will. And I stand here in this great group of people, faithful people who know God and love God and worship God and pray to God. And I say, who knows? Whether you have been brought to the kingdom, to our world, to this crazy time in earth's history, to this pandemic time, who knows whether you have been brought to the kingdom at this particular moment for a precise reason to bring about powerful results. Because here's what I know, there's a lot of people scared right now. There's a lot of governments that are floundering right now trying to deal with a worldwide pandemic. Here's what I know there are a whole lot of people that have been talking about the end of the world and the end of time. And I wonder if that old preacher, way back in my memory, when he talked about the coming of the Lord, I wonder if this has something to do with it. It's time for the people of God who have a word from God to share that word from God. It's all the way through the Bible. God uses individuals, Abraham. He became the father of the entire Jewish nation. Joseph saved that nation and the whole world of his day from starvation. Moses led that nation out of captivity when they were slaves in Egypt. Joshua led that nation into a land that God had promised them. Gideon delivered that nation when they were scared to death. He delivered them from enemy attacks. Samuel girded that nation spiritually, guided them and kept the enemy at bay all the Days of his life because he was a powerful prophet and not one of his words ever fell to the ground unanswered by God. David led that nation and they established their capital in Jerusalem. Solomon led that nation and they built God a glorious temple in Jerusalem. And then years later, after the enemy had made his boast and launched another attack, it was this young lady named Esther. Just one person who saved that nation from certain annihilation. Now, the book of Esther that we read in your Bible, it's bookended by two great feasts. And we know, of course, that the feast at the end of the book of Esther, that's the feast of Purim because that's what the whole book is leading us to, that feast of great victory. The feast at the beginning of the book, you see it right in chapter one, it was held by King Ahasuerus to impress his subjects. It was kind of his version of Facebook. He wanted to show them everything that he was. Here's my vacation. Yeah. Here's the restaurant meal I had. It was sort of like that. The feast at the beginning was King Ahasuerus just saying, look at me, look at me, look at me. So it was very much like Facebook. So, um, I'm sorry, cheap shot. I know for 180 days, he displayed the wealth of his kingdom before all of his subjects. And then for seven more days, he held an elaborate party for his nobles at his palace. And it was during that feast, the feast that opens the book of Esther, it was during that feast that King, Queen Vashti was banished forever and the search for a new queen began across Persia. Now, I want you to follow me closely for just a couple of minutes, and then you can go back to whatever you're doing. Some historians speculate that the reason this feast was held was because the king was planning an invasion of Greece with his nobles. Since the time frame for the book of Esther is not given. In scripture, we don't know exactly when these events occurred. There's no time frame given. So some historians, they identify King Ahasuerus with uh, King Xerxes from history. And so that would place his reign around 485 to 465 BC. And those war councils may indeed have happened during this very lengthy six-month-long party. They may have. However, there is a collection of ancient rabbinical writing. It's been assembled in modern days, but the writings are ancient. It's called Legends of the Jews. And that writing speculates something different. That Ahasuerus actually lived much earlier than that, and he was actually celebrating something totally different. He wasn't just getting everybody together to plan a war council. He was doing something a little different. Now, that's a little bit of speculation, but this part is without dispute one of the reasons that ahasuerus was such a wealthy king is that many years before king nebuchadnezzar had conquered the kingdom of judah and he had carried away all their wealth and so many of their people into babylon that invasion and the deportation of its people that happened in three distinct waves now these dates will be semi-important in a minute. In 605 BC, so about 600 years before Jesus was born, in 605 BC, the kingdom of Judah was invaded by Nebuchadnezzar and many of the young men were taken, including Daniel and his three friends. That's how they ended up in Babylon. Then in 597 BC, the capital city of Jerusalem was invaded and many more were taken and made slaves in Babylon. And then the fateful year. In 586 BC, the city of Jerusalem fell to Nebuchadnezzar. The beautiful temple of Solomon was destroyed and all of its treasures confiscated and taken to Babylon. The Bible specifically says in 2 Chronicles that Nebuchadnezzar also carried the vessels of the house of the Lord to Babylon and he put them, imagine, those holy vessels dedicated to the one true God, he put them in his temple at Babylon. Now, time passes. And later, the Babylonian Empire falls to the Medo-Persian Empire. And so all those treasures of the Jewish temple, they passed from the Babylonian empire to the Medo-Persian empire and they became the property of its rulers and eventually one of the rulers of the Medo-Persian empire was King Ahasuerus of the book of Esther. So he was wealthy because of inherited wealth. The rabbinical writings, they proposed that Ahasuerus held this massive feast six months long to open the book of Esther. He held that, that feast in the third year of his reign. We know that from Esther 1 verse 3. But the rabbinical writings say that he held this feast not so much to plan a war council, that may have happened, but he was celebrating 70 years since the beginning of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, he's dead and gone. Even his empire has crumbled and passed to the Medo-Persians, but Ahazuerus wouldn't have any wealth. He wouldn't have any throne. He wouldn't have any position if it hadn't been for Nebuchadnezzar way back when. So the, the rabbinical writings suggest that he's holding this feast to celebrate 70 years from the time Nebuchadnezzar took the throne. He's honoring the one who invaded Judah, who conquered Jerusalem, who destroyed the temple, and who had thus given Babylon and then Medo-Persia all this wealth. In their proposed timeline, at the time the book of Esther happens, at the time Ahasuerus is king, at the time Esther lives, the temple is still laying in ruins back in Jerusalem. And the Jews are still living hand to mouth in the land that Nebuchadnezzar had deported them to, which is now controlled by Medo-Persia. I know that's a lot of history. Therefore, here's the point. As far as Ahasuerus is concerned, here's what he's celebrating. There was a well-known promise from a well-known Jewish prophet named Jeremiah. And Jeremiah had said, Thus saith the Lord. After 70 years are accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and I will perform my good word toward you in causing you to return to this place, i.e. Jerusalem. Now, Jeremiah had spoken that word. And so Nebuchadnezzar, uh, he ruled uh, for 70, uh, it was 70 years past in, in, the, in the, the rear view mirror from when he had taken the throne. So Ahasuerus is celebrating that this man, Nebuchadnezzar, who came to power 70 years previous. He's celebrating. It's been 70 years. God hasn't shown up for the Jews. The Jews are still my slaves and my servants and my subjects. And so that promise from that old Jewish prophet, it can't possibly be true. So we're going to have a big six-month-long party to celebrate that Nebuchadnezzar came to power 70 years ago. And so the word of God cannot be true. The promise of God expired and Jeremiah the famous prophet was wrong they tell us in the rabbinical writings that among the treasures that Ahazuerus displayed during that wild party of Esther chapter 1 some of the treasures that he displayed during that feast were actually the sacred vessels that he had taken from the temple in Jerusalem and some of those vessels they were desecrated over and over and over again as the guests used sacred vessels from the Jewish temple to drink wine and commit all kinds of sin during that feast. They tell us that Ahazuerus even hired Egyptian craftsmen and he said, I want you to build me a replica of the throne that King Solomon once sat on. And they say in history, they built him quite a poor replica, but he still sat on it and tried to say, "I've usurped Solomon and David and Isaiah and Jeremiah." He arrogantly defied the God of the Jews, and he mocked the promise that said, "In 70 years you'll go back." He said, "Nebuchadnezzar came to power 70 years ago, and you're still not back, so the promise is dead, the prophets are gone, and you have no hope, and I'm mocking." your God however Ahasuerus calculations were wrong he obviously didn't pass math God wasn't thinking about 70 years since Nebuchadnezzar came to the throne of Babylon big whoop who cares God wasn't thinking about an insignificant pagan king God was thinking about the destiny of his people So if you study a little further, you'll find this, and I'm sorry for all the dates, but we'll get through it in about a paragraph. Assyria fell to Babylon in 609, giving Nebuchadnezzar his throne, 609 BC. Babylon fell to Medo-Persia in 539 BC, exactly 70 years. God's promise hadn't expired, but God had given the Babylonian empire an expiry date. Babylon lasted for 70 years, not Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon first invaded Judah four years after he took the throne in 605 B.C. And after Cyrus of Persia gave permission for the Jews to return in 539 B.C., they laid the foundation of the temple in 536 B.C. Just so your head doesn't spin, let me tell you, that was exactly 70 years. The temple was destroyed in 586 B.C. The rebuilt temple was dedicated after years. years of construction in 516 BC. You don't have to do the math. It was exactly 70 years. The temple was completed in 516 BC and the walls of Jerusalem were finally completed in 445 BC. You don't have to do the math. Exactly 70 years. God wasn't setting his watch by some pagan king. God had a destiny. He said, I'm going to let Babylon live for exactly 70 years. I'm going to let my people be in captivity for exactly 70 years. I'm going to let the temple lie dormant for exactly 70 years. And I'm going to let the walls of Jerusalem, I'm going to let them sit dormant for another 70 years. Anybody notice a little pattern? God said, after 70 years. I'm going to come back. I'm going to perform my word. So it's 70, 70, 70, 70. God was right on time. Can I tell you, God is not up in heaven wringing his hands saying, what am I going to do about coronavirus? What am I going to do about all this strife and conflict? God isn't setting his watch by anything that's happening in your world. He has a prophetic timetable for this world and the devil can't do anything about it, and the politicians can't prevent it, and no force in this world can circumvent it. God is in charge. I know if you struggle with math, I just kind of messed up your head, but I'm done. Because here's the point. We may not know, the historians don't, we may not know exactly when Ahasuerus lived and reigned, but we do know for sure That God's word is absolutely true. King Ahasuerus could not have anticipated that one of his successors who would eventually sit on the throne of the Medo-Persian Empire, a pagan ruler named Cyrus. Can you imagine? Ahasuerus could not have comprehended that one day, this is the king who mocks the Jews and mocks the temple and mocks the Jewish prophets. But one day one of his successors would actually be the one to fulfill God's promise and fulfill Jeremiah's prophecy. This is the very last statement from the chronicles of the Jews in the Old Testament. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, same kingdom as Ahasuerus just later, It came to pass in the first year of Cyrus that the word of the Lord spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished. And so the Lord stirred up the spirit of that pagan king Cyrus, king of Persia, and he made in his first year, he made a proclamation throughout all the kingdom and he put it in writing saying, thus saith Cyrus king of Persia oh he thought he was saying it but behind his mouth was God going thus saith Cyrus because God was the one that was running this show thus saith Cyrus king of Persia all the kingdoms of the earth hath the Lord God of heaven given me and he hath charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem which is in Judah and so he says to all of his subjects who is there among you of all his people where are the Jewish people the Lord your God be with you and you can go up, you can go home you can go back and rebuild your temple and your city and your walls That should never have happened. But God put it on the heart of a pagan king. The book of Isaiah actually calls Cyrus by name more than a century before he was born because God is in charge of everything that happens in this earth. If God is in charge of kingdoms, if God is in charge of nature, if God is in charge of our planet, what in the world do you think he can do with your little issue and your little problem. What do you think he can do? He can blow your mind with his miracle working power. The promise of God hadn't expired. As usual, God was right on time. And that is absolutely true, regardless of who King Ahazuerus was, what king they match him up to in history. It's true regardless of exactly when he reigned. Can you imagine that this pagan king who had mocked the Jews, he ended up falling in love with Esther and making her his queen without even knowing she was of Jewish descent. The first feast in the book of Esther, that book is bookended by two feasts. The first feast in the book of Esther assumes that God has broken his promise. But the last feast in the book of Esther assures us that God always keeps his promise. So the message of that little book of Esther is this. When it comes to the people of God, you need to know something. We may be down, but don't count us out just yet. We may be enduring a bad chapter, but God is writing the book and the book isn't finished yet. We may have lost a battle now and again, here or there, but the war isn't over yet. When it comes to the people of God, you may think we're down, but don't you count us out. We have a God that orchestrates the pages of history so he can fully orchestrate the pages of your life. Yeah, we could put it in New Testament terms. We are troubled on every side, but we are not distressed. We are perplexed, but we're not in despair. We are persecuted, but we are not forsaken. And, devil, even sometimes when you knock us down, guess what? We're getting back up because we are not destroyed. Devil, you are not the boss of me. I am not who you say I am. I am not who the world says I am. I am not who you people say I am. I am. Not even who I say I am. I am who God says I am. He is in charge of my life. (laughs) Haman hated the Jews because they refused to blend in with Persian culture. They were a separated people in their beliefs and in their lifestyle. And that's why in Persia they were misunderstood and even persecuted. So it was pretty easy for Haman to convince that pagan king to let him issue a decree of destruction. Here's what he said. Hey, king, there's a certain people scattered abroad and they're dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Watch, their laws are different from all the other people and they don't keep your laws. They keep the laws of their God. It's not to your profit to let them keep living. And that's how that decree of destruction got issued. He said, these are a separated people. These are a different people. They follow different lifestyles and customs and rules. And and so the king agreed. And the lot was cast. And the plot was hatched. And the Jews' fate was sealed. Haman's decree stated that they would be robbed and slain on the 13th day of the 12th month. So it was less than a year away. And there was nothing That anyone could do about it. That is. Until the Jews. Went into prayer. And fasting. And Mordecai. Went into prayer. And fasting. And he challenged Esther to intercede. Before the king. Haman's decree. Was that the Jews would be destroyed. In just 11 months. That was his boast. That was his brag. That was his plan, that was his decree. In 11 months, you're out of here. In 11 months, you're done. In 11 months, we're gonna wipe you out. In 11 months, we're gonna mop up your blood and take everything you own. In 11 months. But unfortunately for Haman, his decree was slightly less powerful than a promise God had given Abraham 1,300 years before. I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and Abraham, I'm gonna make your name great, and you will be a blessing, and I will bless them that bless thee, and I will curse him that curseth thee, and Abraham, in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. I'm gonna use you to bless all families of the earth. Haman could persecute the Jews, He could no more have annihilated them than Hitler could have in the Second World War. When you look at God's earthly people, the precious Jewish people, Hitler couldn't wipe them out. Assyria couldn't do it. Babylon couldn't do it. Medo-Persia couldn't do it. Nazi Germany couldn't do it. Pharaoh couldn't do it. The Philistines couldn't do it. The Amalekites couldn't do it. The Greeks couldn't do it. The Romans couldn't do it. The Crusaders couldn't do it. The Soviets couldn't do it. The Iranians couldn't do it. And the Palestinians couldn't do it. Because the decree of Almighty God is greater than any other decree. And if God has spoken a word of restoration over your your life, his decree is greater than anybody else's opinion. Oh, I wish I could get somebody to just reach up and get a hold of that because your word your life isn't run by the devil's threat. Your life is run by the word of God. Your life isn't run by the doctor's diagnosis. Your life is under the word of God. Yeah. Oh yes. You know this story. Haman ended up being hanged on the gallows he had built for Mordecai because God takes what the enemy meant for evil and he turns it around for good. God takes what the enemy thought would destroy you and he turns it around and he uses it to strengthen you. And so Mordecai ends up getting a little promotion. He actually ends up being appointed to fill Haman's place in the palace. There are two feasts in the Bible that occur in the New Testament, not in the Old Testament. And the reason is because they occurred, the events that gave rise to these two feasts either occurred at the end of the Old Testament or during the period between the two testaments. So there's two feasts that God didn't say anything about in the Old Testament, but by the time Jesus walked the earth, the Jews are celebrating them. There's Hanukkah, which celebrates the cleansing of the temple after it was uh, defiled. And there's Purim, which happened in the book of Esther, but that was at the end of the Old Testament. So there's nothing said about these feasts in the Old Testament except the book of Esther identifies Purim. And, And so by the time you get to the New Testament, the Jews observe these feasts every year, and Jesus attends both of them. John in his gospel says this. In John 10, 22, Jesus attends Hanukkah, called the Feast of Dedication. And in John 5 and 1, he attends the Feast of Purim. It's not named in that verse, but because of the calculations of what days the feasts are on and what year roughly this is, there was a 10-year span when uh, the Feast of Purim was the only feast that occurred on a Sabbath. And the Bible specifically says it was a Sabbath when Jesus went up to this Feast of the Jews. So undoubtedly, Jesus is going to the temple on the Feast of Purim. And it's on that Feast of Purim that Jesus healed a paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda. Just like the Jews in Persia were paralyzed by fear, this anonymous man at the pool, he's paralyzed physically in his body. And he has been paralyzed for 38 years long years. He has spent all of that time just waiting for the angel to come down and trouble the waters, just waiting for somebody else to pick him up and put him in the pool so he can get his miracle. He is just like the Jews in Persia who are hoping for some supernatural occurrence or they're hoping for someone else to step in and step up and deliver them from the decree of death. Listen to me. But God doesn't move until somebody moves and that somebody is Esther. As soon as Esther starts moving, God starts moving. Standing at that pool in John chapter five, Jesus cuts through all the excuses of that paralyzed man with just one question. He said, wilt thou be made whole? Here's Jesus' question. How much do you want things to change? Are you really willing to do what it takes? Are you willing to try to get up or do you just wanna keep laying there and feeling sorry for yourself? That's a question that should rock your world and rock my world because sometimes we really enjoy complaining and getting sympathy from other people and we don't even bother to pray. We just want everybody to feel sorry for us when they pray. If you've ever asked anybody else to please pray for something you're not even praying for, grow up. You have this avenue open You can talk to Jesus about anything. Stop looking to everybody else for sympathy. Oh, please pray for me. Oh, please feel sorry for me. Oh, please talk to me. Oh, I want to. Have you ever made the mistake of saying to somebody, how are you? (laughs) And it takes a half an hour because they have their doctor's reports and their x-rays all tucked in their purse. They just keep pulling them out. Well, this happened and this happened. Do you understand Jesus might be saying to somebody, how much do you want to get better? Would you like to be whole or are you kind of used to your existence as it is? Are you just kind of making excuses as to why you're not doing very good or you're not serving God or you don't have joy or you can't smile? There's a lot of people that lay on their excuses and this man has been laying beside that pool for 38 years and Jesus cuts to the chase. He said, hey, You really want to get well? Will you be made whole? Now, thankfully, way back in the book of Esther, Esther was willing to accept Mordecai's challenge. And Esther wanted things to change enough to do something radical about it. She said, okay, Mordecai, you go and gather together all the Jews that are present here in the capital city of Shushan and you fast for me and you don't eat or drink three days, night or day and I and my maidens, we're gonna fast likewise and then I'm gonna dare to break the law of the Persian Empire. Nobody can just walk in unannounced to the king unless he calls for them. But I'm gonna break the law. I will go in under the king. It is not according to the law but here's my determination. I would rather trust in my God than trust in that king. I would rather trust in my God than trust in my good luck. I would rather trust in my God than trust in my personality and my gifts. So if I perish, I guess I perish, but I am going in because I am going to do something about this situation. I refuse to sit here. I refuse to lay here. I refuse to die in my problem. I refuse. I am going in to see the king. I wish somebody could get a hold of it on a beautiful Sunday and just say, I am going to see the king. If it kills me, I'm going to get to Jesus. If people don't understand me, I'm going to get to Jesus. If everybody mocks me, I'm going to go after Jesus. So Esther accepts the challenge and Haman meets his doom and they all live happily ever after. Well, not quite. Because there's still this little thing called the law of the Medes and the Persians to deal with. You see, when the king made a decree, it was final because it was the word of the king. It could not be changed. So even though they prayed and fasted and God answered and Esther went into the king and he was willing and Haman met his doom through Esther's uh, doing, even though that all happened, the law that the Jews are gonna be robbed and killed in 11 months The clock's ticking down, and that law cannot be changed. And the Jews still have lots of enemies in the kingdom who want to destroy them, and so they still have a battle to fight looming in front of them. And that's when Mordecai steps in one more time. And through the genius of Mordecai, they can't change the law, but he issues in the king's name a counter decree. And that counter decree was given and entered also into the law of the Medes and the Persians. So now you have two laws that kind of contradict each other. The new law that says the Jews can stand and defend themselves, the new law, it can't nullify the previous decree of death, but it can override the old law with a new and greater decree of life. So here's what Mordecai did. Hey, fellow Jewish citizens, There's still gonna be enemies. There's still gonna be battles to fight. But the new law says that even when the enemy comes against you to destroy you, the new law says now you can stand up and fight. Now you can defend your family. Now you can defend your property. And by the way, you have the word of the king on your side. Mordecai wrote that decree in the king's name. He sealed it with the king's ring and he sent it by letters on horseback and camels and mules. and He sent that everywhere in the kingdom. And the king granted the Jews that were in every city, you can gather yourself together. You can stand for your life. And if anybody comes against you, you can knock them down. If anybody tries to destroy you, you can destroy them and slay them and cause to perish. Anybody that would assault you and you can take their stuff, their spoil and have it for your own. And so the 13th day of the 12th month arrives, but something has changed. The Jews are ready. They have the word of the king on their side. Music, come on back. Not only did they save their lives and their families and their property, But they won a decisive victory over all their enemies. The Bible tells us in the book of Esther that 75,000 men who wanted to annihilate the Jews, 75,000 of them were killed in that battle on one day, including the 10 sons of Haman And this is amazing. Even some of their former enemies said, we don't want to be on that team. We want to be on your team. We want to be on the Jewish team. We want to be on the team where God is working. And so even some of their former enemies joined in to help them. Here's what the book of Esther recounts. In the 12th month, that is the month Adar, on the 13th day of the same, when the king's commandment and his decree drew near to be put in execution, watch In the day that the enemies of the Jews hoped to have power over them, it was turned to the contrary, and the Jews had rule over them that hated them. If you've served Jesus any length of time, you've had a day like that. When the enemy hoped that on that day, in that dark night of the soul, in that week when hell attacked you, he was hoping to have power over you. But if you've walked with Jesus any length of time, you've lived through some days when it should have gone bad for you, but instead you were blessed through walking through that trial. It should have been the end of you, but it was just the beginning for a new chapter of victory in your life. So I close with this. What actually happened on the Feast of Purim? Only one thing. The Jews exercised their right to fight I want somebody to say my right to fight you have a right to fight how did they win the king could not nullify the old law but he gave a new law that superseded the old law they won by exercising the new law do you know there are two very similar laws that apply to you in your life. There is the original law of sin and death. That law, which applies to everybody in this building, and you can't change it, that law says you were born a sinner, you have committed sins, and you are worthy of eternal death. That law is irrevocable. It cannot be changed, modified, or nullified. It is the law of sin and death, and everybody in this building, every human being who's ever been born falls under the law of sin and death but I stand in this pulpit on this Sunday morning to say I am thankful that we have a king who has issued a new law, a greater law, a higher law, and a more powerful law. It does not change or nullify the old law of sin and death. That still exists. Anybody that's getting a little older, you know you're in a body that is not glorified. The law of sin and death still works. It still exists. But Here's what the king did. While we can't change that law, I'm gonna issue a new law and it's called the law of the spirit of life. That's what Paul's talking about. He said, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Watch, he says it exactly. For the law of the spirit of life, somebody shout new law, it has made me free from the law of sin and death. Somebody shout old law. So the old law still exists, but when I walk through this life every day, I am not subject to the old law. It's still in effect. I could still stumble back into it, but I am empowered by a newer law, a greater law, a higher law. It is the law of the spirit of life. So just before we go on about our day, I just got one more scripture we don't have service tonight, so hang with me for three or four more minutes. This is still Romans 8, and Paul's still explaining this to us. Look at this. you got to see this. And if Christ be in you, if anybody in here, that's the case, that Jesus lives in you, would you raise your hand? So this is you. Somebody say, this is me. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin. In other words, the old law is still active. Anybody in here ever made a mistake? Anybody ever committed a sin? Even since you become a Christian. So the old law is still active. But Paul says, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Paul said, you've got to remember this. That while you're still subject to the old law out here in your everyday nine to five walking around life, there's a new law operating in you. The new law is given. It doesn't cancel the old law, but it overrides the old law. Watch this. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, if you've got the Holy Ghost... He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. What are you trying to say, Paul? I'm trying to say this. You've got the king on your side. Your life isn't governed by the word of the world or the threat of the devil. Your life is governed by the word of God. You've got the king on your side. There's a new life coursing through you. There's a new existence and a new power in you. And you are governed by the word of the king. He said, therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to this old flesh to live after the flesh you don't have to submit to that old law you don't have to be a drug addict or an alcoholic or a porn addict you don't have to keep slipping back into that old life all the time you don't have to submit to that old decree for if you live after the flesh you will die but if you through the spirit do mortify the deeds of the body you shall live. What are you saying, Paul? I'm saying you have a right to fight. That's what I'm saying. Don't let the devil sneak up on you during the pandemic and while you're a little distance from everybody socially and a little distance from church socially, don't let the devil sneak up on you and drag you back into that old life. That's garbage. That almost killed you before. Listen, there's a new life law there's a new sheriff in town there's a king who gave you a word and the word is you have a right to fight i know the decree of death has been issued i know the devil has made his threats i know the enemy is going to attack that is an irrevocable fact don't think it's going to get a whole lot Easier, but even if it gets a whole lot more difficult, listen to me as the children of God governed by a stronger, greater, newer, higher, more powerful law, you have a right to stand on your feet and square your shoulders and push back against the attack of the enemy. Don't let him run your home, don't let him mess up your marriage, don't let him in your mind. You have a right to stand your ground and fight. Undone, stand with me. Would you please? Everybody in the building. Don't get in a hurry. We only got one service. We can take five minutes here. Do you know that Jackson Charters received the Holy Ghost in Bible study on Wednesday night while we were praying? We didn't come to the altar. He still got it. We didn't gather around, lay hands on him. He still got it. We were just in the pews, six feet apart. He still got it. God isn't limited. So would you lift your hands right now? And every apostolic in the room, would you get your voice in the air and say, I am tired of the devil attacking me. I have a right to fight. I am tired of the enemy just messing with my mind. I have a right to fight. I am tired of the devil coming into my home and trampling my family underfoot. I have a right to fight. Yes, 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 yes. Oh, somebody that the devil's been attacking your family. I need you to get a little militant and say, not my house, not my home, not my family. I have a right to fight. Jesus, I pray over your people, I pray over the people of God. Open their eyes and let them see who they are. Open their eyes and let them see that your word is greater and stronger. Open their eyes, Jesus, and let them see that they that be with us are more than they that be against us. Open their eyes and let them see greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Open their eyes. Jesus, it's been kind of tickling around the edges of so many of us over the last few weeks. So we dare to voice it. Jesus, it's tumultuous times, terrifying times, treacherous times. Call us to war, Jesus. I'm not talking about a physical battle with physical weapons. I'm talking about call your people to war. There are intercessors in this church that the devil fears. But because of four plus months of being just kind of awkwardly distanced and we can't do church like we used to before this hit in March, They're just kind of sidelined. God, call them back. Call them back from the reserves to the front lines. Call them back from inactivity to high activity. Jesus, let let the word of God be in their mouth. Let praises be in their mouth. Let your word and your promise be in their mouth and call them to war. Call them to war because we need a word from you. We need the word of the king. I know I'm not probably not praying over everybody, but I'm praying over somebody. Could I just get you to lift your hands and say, Jesus, I wanna be like Esther. Jesus, I wanna be like Joseph. Jesus, I wanna be like David. I wanna serve your purpose in my generation. Listen to me, God is calling somebody to war in the prayer room. God is calling somebody to war in the secret place because that changes everything. Yes, 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 yes. If you drove here with them, if they live in your house, if they've been over for a meal, if they're in your car, or if you're seated beside them and they're in your bubble, we can't join hands with everybody but you can join hands in your bubble. Would you lift up every hand you got in your little bubble? Join your hands together and in your bubble, your family, whoever you're standing with, would you lift up every hand you got and would you just pray right now? Everybody, the power of God is present to heal. The power of God is present to deliver. The power of God that does great miracles is here right now. The power of God that fills people with the Holy Ghost is here right now in this room. Don't let a moment pass you by, who knows, but whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Keep praying, they're gonna sing, but keep praying. We're almost finished, hang in with us for five minutes. They're gonna sing, keep praying, keep praying. Let them sing, you pray. Come on, church, come on, church. Come on, church. Yes, yes. In Jesus' name. Get out of my house, devil. Get out of my mind, devil.